One day, I wake up, I turn on the TV, and I hear the announcer say, police officers are serving a warrant right now outside the home of Alberto San Pedro. Oh my God, what just happened? This guy who I was hanging around with was just swept up in an organized crime sting. Next thing you know, they're leaking and, you know, looking at the wiretap records and there, lo and behold, Rick Sanchez, star anchor. <laughs> and um, I thought my world had come apart. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Rick Sanchez found himself at the center of a hot crime story, and not in the way he'd like. After rising to the top of Miami's news networks, he had suddenly lost his job, audience, and reputation overnight. This might have been the end of any other reporter's career, but Rick was not about to give up. Not after how much work it took to get here. 20 years later, we know Rick Sanchez as the first Latino newscaster to be on nationally broadcasted shows and the founder of Agua Media, a podcast group dedicated to telling the many untold stories of Latinos in America. To get to this point, Rick had to make mistakes as he learned to separate his public and private persona and restructured his relationship to fame. But before we jump ahead, let's go back to the beginning of Rick's story growing up in Cuba during the rise of Fidel Castro. What was it like living in Cuba for your parents? When Fidel Castro comes to power, there's a revolution in Cuba. And my mother decides at that very moment, I have to get my children out of this country. There was fighting in the streets. There was machine gun fire not far from our neighborhood. We were in uh, Guadabacoa. That was where we grew up. And you could see the battles engaging and something bad was coming. And the feeling was this Castro guy, even though he doesn't say he's a communist, they feared that he would be a communist. And of course, the stories were that he's going to rip all the children away from their parents. He's going to take everything away from everyone. He was going to nationalize everything. And none of that was yet happening. But the feeling was that it was going to happen. So my mother um, and my father uh, decide to bolt for the airport. At the time when they get to the airport, uh, it's 1960s, uh, between 1960 and 1961, the airport is just crazy. It's so crowded with so many people. Everybody is trying to get out. It's kind of like a last plane out situation. And my mother has hidden everything that she can inside of her dress. She's sewn it into her dress, into her underwear, because she knows that they're going to start taking things away from people. And my brother, Rudy, who just passed away this year, they told my mother he's too old. He can't go. So she had to make a decision. And she decided to take me and my dad and her, and we flew out of the country together, leaving my brother behind. He was in the hands of the Catholic Church. So he would be put under something called the Peter Pan flights. 
The Peter Pan flights was started by the Catholic Archdiocese to get children who otherwise wouldn't be able to leave their countries out. My brother was put on a Peter Pan flight and they flew him to Tucson, Arizona. My mother, after we arrived in the United States, found out that my brother was there. And then she had to try and somehow get to him. And finally, my mother one day had amassed enough money and she was going to go to Tucson, Arizona. The only way she could go was to get to a train depot and take a train to Tucson to go get my brother, Rudy Rodolfo, get him back and put him, you know, and bring him back to be with us. That was a really tough thing for her. She was lost. She didn't speak English. She was scared. And I remember her crying all the time because she missed my brother. On the way there, she got mugged and she had no way of getting to Tucson. I remember she came home and she was crying and she didn't know what to do. And she was, it was, it was just a horrible situation. Finally, the neighbors got together with some other neighbors and they talked to the people at the train station and they did a collection and they passed the hat and uh, they were able to come up with money. So my mom, she goes to Tucson, she picks up my brother and she brings him back home. And then we're able to start our lives together. As an immigrant in America, especially at that time, uh, you're not only having to deal with financial instability, but you're, not, you're having to deal with things like, you know, social instability and, and, and racism. And I, I was wondering if you you felt like that that actually affected your family in any way. You know, it was weird. Something else happened that was very formative at the time. My dad... Rodolfo, the son of Don Rodolfo, comes to the United States and he can't handle it. He has to start over from scratch and doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to do it. Meanwhile, there was this guy back in Havana before my mom left, Paco. Paco was a poor guy with a fourth grade education. He had to raise his sister and his mother by working because his dad died. He worked at Calixto Garcia Hospital, and on that day, he saw my mother there and looked at her and fell in love with her and only wished that one day he could be with a woman like her. But he figured he couldn't because she wasn't in his class. Finally, in the United States, Paco meets Adela, my mother, and now he is in her class. In fact, she needs him. My dad, my real dad, is kind of falling apart. He's drinking. He can't just, you know. He can't provide for us. Paco steps in after my dad leaves, sees my mother, and he becomes the man who raises me and shows me how to fight and how to hustle and how to live. What was school like for you? Rough. Um, I didn't speak English, and I was going into the school system. So I arrive in school, Mayhem Walters Elementary School, and there um, introduced to Miss McIlvain. Miss McIlvain is going to be my teacher. Miss McIlvain is an old Southern woman. I felt threatened. You know, I didn't know the environment. I was scared and I didn't speak English. And I was one of the first immigrants that came in that wave in that school 
Mayhem Walters Elementary School who didn't speak English. And so the school was not set up to handle a child who didn't know how to speak English. So she didn't know how to teach me. And I kind of, you know, felt stupid or was even made to feel stupid. The other kids I remember looked at me like I was, you know, had horns, like I had horns growing out of my head. Um, so eventually she, uh, she called my parents and, uh, she told my mom that I was mentally retarded and that I would probably never succeed in the school system in America because I had serious learning disabilities. She actually wrote mental retardation in my, uh, my report card, my first report card. So she told my mom I had to fail first grade. Had she not dealt with other immigrant children? Because I mean, at the time, what you were in, this is a suburb of Miami in Florida. So like, had, had there had there not been any immigrants coming into Florida before then? No, there, I was it in at least for her. I mean, in her class, she'd never dealt with an immigrant child before. This is 1961 or two in Miami, Florida. The immigrant wave is about to come. I'm one of the first. and. She did not have an ESL program in the school yet. There was no ESL program, English as a Second Language, or any of those programs yet that had been fostered by the school system or the school board. After failing first grade, I uh, started in the school system, and I, I did what every other human being would normally do. I never really started speaking English until I got to school once I got to school, then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you you have a facility for language. We all do. And I picked it up right away. I mean, when you're five or six years old, you could pick up a language fast. I was able to stay in the school system. They put me on a program where I came in and not in a regular class, but, you know, and met with other teachers. And eventually, you know, what's funny? When I graduated from that high school, Mayhem Walters High School, my mother uh, worked really hard, but the school, the lady in the, in the school office had called my mom, rang her and my mom picked up the phone. And I didn't know this at the time, but at the time I was just the kid in school, but she said, you know, you are going to want to be here for Ricardo today because it's the assembly that we have at the end of the year. And it's really important you go. My mother was worried, but I remember she went and she was there. She even brought my aunt, Nettie. And um, it was the sixth grade assembly for Mayhem Walters Elementary School. And um, suddenly they said, we're now going to give the award for the JAC, Junior American Citizen. We give this award every year to the outstanding citizen in our school. And then they read my name. And then they said, and now we're going to give the award for the American Legion. I still have it. It's a little badge they give you. You may have seen it in the old days. They gave it in all schools. It's the American Legion Award. And some guy in a soldier's uniform comes and gives it to you. And this man came and he was all dressed up in an army uniform. And he was an older guy. He was a veteran from World War II. And and they called me up and they they pinned me with that. And then they gave me the uh, Best Athlete Award. And there was something academic with my, my grades. At this point, I, I was a complete straight-A student. I mean, 
I was literally getting like A's in every class. And so on that day, they called me up and they gave me every award, just about it seemed, that the school had to offer. And my mom was in the back and uh, she was crying. And it was one of the first times in my life that I realized, you know, that I was going to be able to succeed. That you can, as hard as it is, get through hardship when you're an immigrant and you come to the United States and you're a refugee and you feel lowly. But that journey from first grade, mental retard, you know, failure to sixth grade awards assembly, it was pretty cool. It was, it was the beginning of what, you know, could be something pretty special for me in my life and mostly for my mom. Is that something that you started to see or something that you held? It's like, okay, like if I work hard, like I can achieve anything I want. And do you even know what you wanted to achieve or just, was it just like achieving highly? I wanted to be an American. That's all I wanted. I, I wanted to not speak Spanish anymore. I mean, I didn't want to dress like a, like a Latino. I didn't want to be a Latino. I wanted to be a, an American. I, I, and I remember, <laughs> it's funny when my dad would always, uh, you know, my dad had these very firm rules. First of all, you had to wear hard soled shoes. You had to wear a shirt with a collar and you must never wear pantalones mecánicos. Rough translation, that means mechanics pants, which to most people listening is jeans. You must not wear jeans. Jeans are for poor people. It's a representation. If you wear a T-shirt to, to school or anything that doesn't have a collar, it says that you are not as good as the other students. And you can't wear sneakers to school because it's just wrong. So I had to wear hard-soled shoes, a collared shirt, and I could never wear jeans. I had to dress like I was trying to get a corporate job or something. It was seemed ridiculous, but it was a very refugee thing, you know? As you went towards end of high school, what are you thinking about, you know, college, your future, where, what you wanted to do? My dad wanted me to be a, a baseball player and I was okay. Um, and I was doing very well in school. I had pretty good grades. And uh, I said, you know, no, I, I want to play an American sport. I want to play American football. So I played I went out for the football team. Uh, I had already played Optimus football. My dad was totally against it. He said, you can't play football. And if you want to play football, you've got to find a way to do it on your own. I said, dad, it's only, it's $20 because you got to pay for the uniform and the insurance. And he said, if you can find the money, you can do it. So I went around and I mowed all the neighbor's lawns for three or $4. And I got enough money to be able to pay for it. And then I had a friend who was on the football team and he introduced me to the coach and I started playing Optimus football and I was actually pretty darn good. By the time I got to be a senior, my coach says to me, he says, we've got people coming to see you. And I said, what do you mean? There's people coming to see you coming to see me. He said, there's a man named Andy Talley from a place called Brown university. It's an Ivy league school. They're looking for young athletes with grades good enough to be able to get into an Ivy League school and you match the part and they, they're coming to see you. But um, my SAT score wasn't good enough. 
So they didn't, they couldn't, they couldn't give me the scholarship because they had pretty rigid uh, rules. Was that the first time that you had that, like, I don't know, a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit shine through? Uh, um, and, and, and did you like develop that thought where it's like, oh, like if I mow a few lawns, I can make enough money to do, you know, to, to, to play football. I, I knew early on that the only way to succeed is to grow. And the only way to grow is to be involved in different types of things. So I, I learned early on in life that you have to set a course which allows you to do something that differentiates you from everybody else. That number two, the only way you can succeed is to grow. That means find what you don't know and gain it somehow. Um, much like we look at a portrait and we can see what's missing and I got to get that. I got to get that. Right. So to me, it was, I need to learn how to be an athlete because I see that in this country, if you're poor, you can get a football scholarship and go to college. That's money. My parents can't afford to send me to a university. I have to work harder to get to a university. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to be able to get to that university. And to me, in that point, that was it. So the third thing is find out what you have to do to get there. Really, it's called hustling, right? It's called being scrappy. Find it and do it. And it's the same thing that works for me to this day in business. Find a way to grow, find a way to differentiate yourself and find a path that may hurt to get you there. Why did you think education was important? Because like I've talked to people that like scoff at college, right? And it's like, okay, no, like I, the streets can teach you more and like starting your own businesses can teach you more. Um, but then I've also talked to some other people. It's like, okay, no, this is the best way to grow in like an institution. And so why did you, or, and, and how did you discover, how did you know that college would be the right place for you to grow? When I first got to college, I realized what I did not know. You realize in college that you have to up your game in certain areas. For example, for me, even though I had pretty good grades at my high school, which was a public school, albeit, I realized I didn't have the grammatic skills to be able to succeed as a writer. So I could see right away where the hole was. So I immediately went and I bought Prentice Hall Handbook for Writers and read it five times, cover to cover. But I didn't know what the necessity was until I went to school. School teaches you what you need. It doesn't give it to you. It just teaches you what you need. And then you have to find a way to get it. So for me, um, education was very, very important. You're figuring out all these things that you need to learn, like how to write better, right? But uh, how does that translate to what you know, Rick wants to do for his career, wants to do in the world? Like, how, how did you develop that? I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, I've always thought it would be uh, important to, you know, go into a field where I can, you know, make money. And most kids who are immigrants, what's instilled to them is, you know, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an engineer, uh, be a computer analyst, do the things where you can automatically get a job. And then, I'm going to school at the University of, uh, 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 I'm, I'm going to Moorhead State, and a professor says to me, there is a scholarship that is about to become available for journalism. They're going to choose three people in the United States 
Um, you have to have a certain GPA, a certain this. They're going to send you to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. And there you're going to take a but typing proficiency test back then, which was important, a grammar test, a this test, a that test. You're going to sit with the, the board of uh, CBS. And uh, if you get it, uh, they're going to pay your way through school and hire you afterward and give you your first job in television. And I said, wow. And I applied. And I sat with these people and I did the interviews and I took the tests and lo and behold, they chose me. They said, CBS News is going to pay your way through school. You're going to be a CBS scholar. You'll intern at WCCO, a TV station in Minneapolis. And, um, and it was really exciting. I called my brother and my parents and I said, I have been chosen to get a scholarship to go. And they're going to pay my way through school. And this is very exciting. And, uh, my brother says to my parents, don't let him do it. And I said, why? My brother says, go right now, mom, turn on the TV. How many people do you see who look like us? How many Latinos are doing the news? Go turn the TV on. Do you see any Latinos? Do you see any blacks? Do you see any women? They're old white guys doing the news. He's going to go into something where he'll never be hired. So it sounds great, but it's stupid. Don't let him do it. Here I get this scholarship, which I thought was a big deal. And I'm being told by my family that I should turn it down because it's nothing that'll ever work out for an immigrant because refugees and immigrants and people with a little darker skin tone aren't hired to do the news. He actually made a pretty good argument at the time because he was right. It was the, you know, what, 1970s still? Um, and it was about to happen. So I chose to take the, the, the scholarship. I wanted it. So I took it and told my brother, sorry, I think you're wrong. I'm going to make this work. So I did, and I went to the University of Minnesota. Just before I graduated, there was a guy named Freud. Freud is a news director at a small TV station in Alexandria, Minnesota, KCMT. And he comes to the uh, Murphy Hall, the University of Minnesota School of Journalism building. And I knew he was coming and I knew he was going to be my way out. He was going to be the way that I was going to prove that there was a way that I could make this work. So when Mr. Freud came um, and gave his speech, I found my only good suit and I put it on and I got there early and I had the first seat in the first row and I was looking at him and I was making sure he could look at me. And when he was done, I came up to him and I said, I know you have this TV station in Alexandria. Could I come and work there? He says, I can't pay you. He said, I don't want pay. I just want to work. He says, okay, come on out and I'll give you something. So I spent my summer in Alexandria, Minnesota by myself, literally living in the building, um, you know, barely getting by. But by the end of the summer, I was his sportscaster. I was doing filing reports and sportscasting. Now I graduate from the University of Minnesota. Wait, like you I were on a, air? Yes, I was on air. How, was how did you do air. that so quickly? 
because it was a tiny little station. They had two reporters and five cameras. I mean, it was like, you know, I don't even know if it exists anymore. Or do you remember when you found out like you were going to be on air? Because he said, um, you think you can learn to report. We could use you. And um, he said, there's a new farming method they're doing where they're going to create bigger shelters to keep the wind from destroying the farmer's crops. And you need to go and interview these farmers so you can do this story. And that was going to be my very first story. So I went out there and I interviewed um, farmers to learn how they were going to adjust to this new uh, plan the government was uh, recommending. And uh, it was just a story, but I remember he he liked it. He and then I went out and did another story, and then I did another story. Wow! I remember I used to I used to practice in the mirror, saying, you know, I, I felt like if I could say it, I could become it. So I remember thinking all the time and standing in front of a mirror and saying, "This is before any of this happened." I would say, reporting live for CBS News, I'm Rick Sanchez. Rick Sanchez for. NBC News. I, I just kept saying it and saying it and saying it because I knew someday I would be able to say that. So by the time I got to this place, KCMT, and I was now on the air and I was able to just say, you know, reporting for KCMT, I'm Rick Sanchez. I was like, whoa. When I started to see this start to happen, not only was I a reporter, but then Mr. Freud came up to me and said, if you want, since I know you have no way of getting home and you're stuck here, you can be a reporter during the week and you could be the the sportscaster on weekends because we lost our sportscaster. We need somebody to do it. And I can give you a few extra bucks and maybe you'll have enough to buy lunch and, you know, pay for your, uh, you know, for a place to stay. Um, and, and, and he did. Wow. So I was a sports a weekend sportscaster, weekday reporter at KCMT in Alexandria, Minnesota. That, gave me the opportunity then when I graduated from the University of Minnesota to not only have grades, I had a tape. I had a piece of videotape. And that is the most important thing in this business. You were also known for some of your crime stories. Uh, and I was wondering how you got into that and what that was like. There was a law passed that allowed networks to buy stations in the United States. So they came and tried to buy the station where I worked. WCKT, and the owner said, no, we're not selling. Channel 7 was left without an affiliation. So we had to remake ourselves. And in the process of remaking ourselves, I remember thinking, I am going to differentiate myself. Reporters usually go on the street and they do this thing where, you know, they hold the microphone, there's a tripod, and and they look at the camera and they read. I said, you know, I, I'm going to do things differently. And I'm going to create something, a style of reporting. I told the photographers, no more tripods. And I told them, from now on, when we go out on the street, I only want to have a lavalier mic and I want to have my hands free and I don't want to be holding the mic. I don't want it to be a distance between me and the person I'm talking to. I want a hand mic so that I can go talk to the police officers. I want to get to a scene. I don't want to file any more packages, no more filing reports. Give me a live truck and I'll just start talking live. So I started this thing. Then they gave it a name and they called it Crime Check. It was actually pretty cool. Miami at the time was going through the most unbelievable crime spree that we've ever seen. It was people getting gunned down in the streets. It was the cocaine cowboy days. It was, there was crime. There were immigrants. It was nuts. The crime was so fast, you couldn't really cover it in a long story form. So what I did was I created something 
where during the newscasts, we did a newscast at five, one at six and one at 10, and then one um, half hour, one at 11. During those times, if a crime happened, I would go there, set up a microwave link. The anchor would say, let's go now to Rick Sanchez and find out what's going on. And I would really do cops live. The show cops. I was doing the show cops on TV. I was saying, okay, we just arrived here at the corner at um, here we are on 10th Street. Uh, As you can see behind me, there is still blood on that wall. That's where a person was shot. There's a police officer over here, Lieutenant Gomez. Uh, Lieutenant, come here real quick. Yeah, can I ask you a question? And I'd ask him questions and he'd answer me and they all knew me. We got to the point where I knew all the cops. They knew me. I knew their families. They knew my family. And it became like I was just doing stories in the moment. Nobody had ever done that before. It unfortunately, and this is not something I'm proud of, it became almost an iconic feature for South Florida. They say at some point, 70% of the people in South Florida were watching it. What was it like having that attention on you? Weird. Kind of messed with my head because I wasn't ready for that. I didn't know how to deal with that. You're now one of the most famous guys in Miami. So forget crime check. You're now the anchor. We're gonna You're going to anchor all of the newscasts and we're going to pay you $350,000 a year. So in four, three or four short years, I went from 17,000 to 350,000. I was the main anchor in Miami and our newscast was being watched all over the country. And people would stop me everywhere I went who were in the news business and said, I've seen you. And I'd go, how could you see me? I'm only in Miami. They say, your tape is distributed all over the country. And soon all newscasts are going to be done like yours. Like how did you mature through the fame? I got hit and knocked down really hard. One day I had a guy come up to me. His name was Alberto San Pedro. And he invited me to his house. And uh, we talked about all kinds of things. And um, Alberto San Pedro, I did not know, but I probably should have. But I was having too good a time being famous and enjoying the free drinks and all the other accoutrements that came with that fame to pay any attention or to be humble enough to pay attention it turns out was being wiretapped by the FBI and the organized crime unit in South Florida. And here I was in his house being recorded as well in his car being recorded as well by his girlfriend, who was an undercover informant being recorded when we went out to bars and I got stupid drunk and acted the fool And suddenly one day I wake up, I was living in Miami Lakes. I turn on the TV and I hear the announcer say, police officers are serving a warrant right now outside the home of Alberto San Pedro. They say he's under investigation for racketeering and There are several other people that might be arrested soon who have been associated with San Pedro and his crime organization. Oh, my God. I just was, wow, what just happened? This guy who I was hanging around with, who I felt comfortable hanging around with, who I knew was kind of a badass, but I really enjoyed being around him. I don't know why was just swept up in an organized crime sting. The reporter, I remember, said, 
We've also been told that Mr. San Pedro has been under surveillance and that they have wiretapped his home and his car for the past several months. I knew right there I was in trouble. The next thing you know, um, they're leaking and, you know, looking at the wiretap records and there, lo and behold, Rick Sanchez, star anchor. <laughs> and um, I thought my world had come apart. Um, David Choate, the news director, called me and said, I don't think we can keep you on the air anymore. This is really ugly. You're a newscaster. You're an anchor. You're a journalist. How can you be a part of this? You know? And I fell. Big. I was done. You're not only fired, but you're not really employable anymore. So I had to start all over again. And I did. The good news was by then, one of the prosecutors investigating San Pedro was talked to an agent. And he said, look, if you have something on Rick, if there's something there, if there's something you find, please report it. Just say it. But if not, would you be good enough to sign an affidavit that says Rick Sanchez was not under investigation, was not the subject of an investigation, was not the target of the investigation, and we found no criminal, no crimes that he committed other than hanging around with this guy. He wrote that. So the prosecutors actually wrote a letter. We gave that letter to the uh, general manager of the station. He shared it with the local newspapers, and they did what I thought was fair, say, yeah, Rick Sanchez is an ass. He hung around with these people he shouldn't have. He was out drinking and carousing and doing all kinds of shit. But you know what he wasn't? He wasn't a criminal, and he never committed a crime. Now I'm back on my feet. Not only am I – now the networks want me because I'm up on – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back, you know. NBC gives me a deal. I go to New York, million-dollar deal. Working at NBC, never in my wildest dreams thought I could do that. It's, I went to CNN, I guess, in the mid-2000s. And uh, pretty soon I was, I was really doing some pretty special stuff. show was having amazing success. Instead of doing the show from the desk, I would do a lot of it sitting next to the director and literally talking to him and said, roll that tape. It was totally different. Huge impact. It was doing very, very well. And then one day I took out my laptop before going to a break and I said to the audience, there's this new thing called www.twitter.com. Do me a favor, go there and during the commercial, tell me what you think of the newscast. I'll read it and maybe I'll share it and maybe you'll teach me something and maybe we'll start a communication. Oh my God, Sam, it was crazy. It started. So First, I got like 10, then 20, then 30, then 40, then 100, then soon it was 50,000, then 100,000, then 200. I mean, it was nuts. This thing just started growing and growing. And before you knew it, I was actually having communication with my audience and it became a big deal. All this stuff was happening for me. And it was, uh, I was kind of back on top again. It was like my life was a roller coaster up and down and up. And then in that moment, I was back on top. And in the middle of all that, CNN realizes I've got this pretty hot show. And then they said, well, we've got an anchor at eight. Paula's on, but she's not doing very well. She's getting crushed. We're going to take her out and put you there. See how it goes. They did. I moved up to the eight o'clock slot. Now think about it. That's a huge deal. Prime time, eight o'clock. Cable news at the time was a big deal. 
So I go there. We start this show. Rick's List does really well. Does really well. It doesn't beat O'Reilly, doesn't beat Oberman, but sometimes I'm like almost like kind of neck and neck with them. Ratings go up. They're very happy. And then they have to make a decision, but they say, go back to the minors, Rick. We're going to give the job to Campbell Brown. So they gave it to Campbell Brown. A year later, Campbell Brown's ratings are in the tank. So they said, would you mind doing, replacing Campbell Brown and doing your show again? So I did. And I did very, very well. And I thought for sure now, man, they're going to give me this gig. And then they say, eh, we're going to pass you up again. We've decided to give the show to the disgraced governor of uh, New York, Elliot Spitzer. And I was just beside myself with grief. And on that very night when I got that news, the public relations department calls and says, somebody wants to do an interview with you. You know, some radio show. I didn't know. I didn't know what the hell satellite radio was. I was really pissed off that I didn't get the gig. And I said, essentially, CNN doesn't believe in diversity because if they did, they'd give people like me an opportunity. They're not willing to give the opportunity to me. They give it to Spitzer. And this whole business is filled with people who don't really uh, appreciate African-Americans or Latinos. There's really not enough diversity. And I just went off. <laughs> Just like a moron, I said all the, and then I said it even worse. And then, and then we get into an argument about John Stewart. John Stewart was making fun of me a lot uh, on his shows, and I should have realized at the time he was doing me a huge favor because he was just having fun with me. But I was taking it very personal, and I started criticizing in the interview. I started saying, "Take John Stewart for example. He's as big a jerk as anybody, and he's probably a racist." Because he's constantly going after me. I didn't mean that, but I said it. And then the guy says, well, John Stewart's just like you. He's a minority, too, because he's Jewish. And I said, oh, yeah, big difference. I mean, being a Latino and being Jewish in television, Jews have to, you know, have done a lot better than I. By the time I was done with it, instead of putting in perspective my frustration and trying to make it sound, I mangled my words and I was accused of being an anti-Semite, which I knew I wasn't. And John even called me that day and said, no, no, Rick, what do I have to do to get you back on? I know who you are. You're nothing like what this is, but they're... by then it was gone. By the time I got home that night, I got a call. It was the president of CNN. And I was told that night, we have to let you go. So you're fired. And I lost my gig at uh, CNN. And uh, it was hard. What did you say in that moment? Just like, you're fired. What do you say back? I said, I understand. And um, is there anything we can do? And he said, no. The board, he said, this has reached the highest levels of Time Warner. And because you've used terms that were offensive and you've talked about our diversity, we can't keep you. They said, have your lawyer talk to our lawyers and let's figure out a way to end this. We were living in Atlanta at the time, although I was going to New York to do most of the primetime shows. I lost my house. I lost my job. It was really humiliating. You couldn't turn on the TV news without hearing a late night comedian make fun of me. Um, it was really hard because I immediately tried to get work and nobody would hire me. They'd say, you're fantastic. We've looked at your tape. You really are pretty good, uh, Rick. I mean, you do a good job, but we can't hire you. But then I came back to South Florida and I said, you know, whatever it takes, 
So I said, well, I can do radio. So I went to Miami and I got a job at a radio station, WIOD, which is part of uh, iHeart. And they gave me a talk show. Never done a talk show before. And I was so scared. So I had to learn that. And I went to my kid's school and I said, I can't afford my kid's school anymore. I'm at a, it's a private school. Is there anything I can do? And they said, yeah, you can come here every morning and teach a class. And then one of your kids will, will, will discount. So I got a job at 530 in the morning teaching media at American Heritage Senior High School. Then I would go to the radio station to do a radio show. Then I talked one of the local TV Spanish stations, you know, like Channel 32 or something, to give me a show where I can do a show in Spanish, though I'd never really worked in Spanish before. And then Roger Ailes used to run Fox News, and he'd been trying to hire me his whole life. But I never, I've always always more comfortable working where I was. He said, look, I can help you out. We're starting this new thing called Fox Latino, and you can be a correspondent there. So I had four jobs. I got up at 5.30 in the morning and I finished like at nine o'clock at night. I was stretching myself and I learned these skills and it made me better. And the one thing I learned during that period was all this time as an anchor, I never understood my brand and I never understood advertising and I never stood marketing. But now I realize that these entities I worked for we're all going to advertisers and saying, we've got Rick Sanchez. In South Florida, Rick Sanchez's name still has cachet and it still has brand value. So they were getting people for me to, to read their commercials and they were getting five, six, seven hundred dollars. I was getting 50 bucks. So because I saw that, one day I met a guy named Dr. Marlo Hernandez. He was a young, brilliant doctor and he was coming in to film a commercial. And he said, I've always watched you on television. My family really likes you. We think you're a ballsy guy. I want you to do our commercial. So I said to the guy, I said, no, you and I are going to start this company. So I learned rather than to take a $50 out of a $700 ad buy, I told him, give me a piece of your company. Give me a percentage of this company that we're going to build. I'm going to be your partner. You don't pay me to do commercials. I am your spokesperson. I figured out a way to triangulate my brand with the company's brand, which I was now a partner in, and increase the ratings of a TV station. And that company blew up. We went from having maybe 100 patients today, 300,000 patients. After that company, you had that stability. How do you approach work post needing to work almost? You approach it through pride and passion of knowing that you can now do the things that you love and do them in such a way so that you can help other people. As, as a minority in the United States, a lot of us don't really get that opportunity. So I really feel like these things that I've gone through are lessons. They can help people. And if I can do that, I will have done my job. So I feel like that, that kind of leads us up to what you're doing now. Can you tell me about how you began to form the idea uh, of Agua Media? We decided with my partner, Saul Trujillo, that it was important for us to have a voice for Latinos. And, um, 
We think the future is in podcasting. It's in streaming. It's in an area where Latinos over-index. And it bothers me that too often Latinos in this country are not recognized for what they have achieved. Um, Latinos are the fifth largest GDP in the world if they were a country. Latinos in the United States, 80% of them are U.S. citizens. Latinos have over-indexed fighting in our wars, joining the military. Um, 95% of Latinos under the age of 41 speak English. And yet we always see them cast as, Hollywood casts us as either criminals or landscapers or housekeepers. And if you turn on the news, we're always those people at the border who we got to stop from coming in. And unfortunately, that's not the story of who Latinos are in America. So I've decided that if I can do my, my, my part in trying to tell the right stories about Latinos, we can really make a difference. And that's why we started Agua Media, which is a company for podcasters, streamers, and dreamers, really, who want to be able to tell their stories and are obviously or often ignored by the institutional establishment media companies that don't see them the way we see ourselves. So looking back at, you know, your whole story, if you were to give your your younger self or like a young person who's trying to make something in this world, what advice would you give to that person? I would say, look at your life as a painting that hasn't yet been filled. Look at the canvas of your life. If it's half full or three quarters full, see what's missing and find how to put there what is missing from it. Gain that skill that you need. Grow, stretch yourself. It's not until you have pain that you learn. And the most important thing I always say to people when they ask me, you know, what's the one thing you think is most important in life? I always say, trip and fall, fail, look to fail. And if you haven't fallen, find somebody to trip you and then turn around, get up and thank them for tripping you because it's in the falling that you get better. Because in that process of getting up, you learn things about yourself that you never knew. That's the stretch. The stretch, as I call it, is the growth. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCullough, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel.
To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.